Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. All right, let's start this week. Who knows what we're in for? I'm recording this Sunday night. As of now, Donald Trump is still the president. I guess as early as Monday, they may invoke the 25th Amendment. They may impeach him again. I don't think he's going to resign. I don't see that happening. I wonder if in his head he still feels like he won. I don't know. What a time to be alive, though. So Kahani Cooperman is my guest today, and she made this amazing film called The Antidote. She produced and directed it along with John Hoffman, and it is a movie that I have told just about anybody that I've encountered over the last week and a half or so, (laughs) just how great it is. You really need to go watch it. It's streaming on Amazon Prime right now, and I think it may be on some other on-demand services, but you know, most of us have Amazon. It's free on there. Go watch it. You will be moved. I was moved. Moved to tears at times. Hopefully moved to action at the end of it, honestly. The Antidote is a documentary, and the subtitle on it is Stories of Kindness, Decency, and the Power of Community. And it's a really interesting film. And I I get into some of the specifics and the creative choices in this conversation with Kahani. But my big takeaway from it was it's just kind of a nice mood piece. It's a film that will make you feel things, but it's not a film that necessarily has a very linear story. It's a lot of little stories. And these little stories add up and become a bigger thing about what it means to be human and what it means to be kind and decent right now in this world, and specifically, I guess, in the United States. And it's interesting because I feel like I explored a lot of these same themes with Craig Dentrone on Thursday's show. He's the showrunner for PBS's American Portrait, looking at what it means to be American right now. And Kahani's film takes that to a very different place And it's really about how do we treat each other? And I feel like, especially in light of everything that happened last week, that conversation is more relevant than ever. And especially if you're like me and you've been feeling down just about, you know, watching what's happening in D.C. and what may continue to happen. Who knows? We've still got another week or so before the inauguration. It it feels like anything could happen in that time. I think the antidote is the antidote, so to speak, that you need right now. Go watch the film and you will feel better. I should also say Kahani and I talked last week, I believe it was on Tuesday, before any of the Georgia election results had come in. And it's interesting, you'll hear me reference that in here. And it's strange to think back to a time where the Georgia Senate race was the biggest news story. And it was what was on our minds because very soon after that race was called and, you know, we didn't really get a chance to enjoy it because there were riots and people breaking into the Capitol and threatening our very way of life. But obviously, we don't reference those events in this interview because they hadn't happened yet. But there are moments you'll hear where Kahani especially is unsure of what's coming. And, you know, it's kind of eerie when you hear it, I guess, now and think, maybe we aren't all paying enough attention to this. It feels like a lot of people in the media were really caught off guard If you've been listening, if you've been paying attention, this sentiment is out there. You know, this didn't come from left field. And it's pretty tragic that we weren't better prepared for it. And I hope 
that doesn't happen again because I feel like there will be other marches. And I mean like in the next couple of days, there will be other riots. There will be other attempts at overthrowing the election or causing chaos or, you know, I don't know what the end game is. I really don't. But last week changed a lot of things. And it's interesting, too, because I feel like a lot of the way that I was reacting to the antidote was thinking of it in terms of the coronavirus pandemic. But now with the new context of, you know, these riots and really a terrorist attack on our capital, I feel like the film can be viewed in a different light. And so if you haven't seen it yet and you go watch it, some of the central questions at the core of this film of, you know, what does it mean to be an American right now? What does it mean to be a human right now? What does decency look like? And, you know, who is deserving of our decency? Of course, I would answer everybody, but there are people that wrestle with that question. The events in D.C. put all those questions into a different light. In addition to this film, Kahani has also been making documentaries for a long time, but she also spent 18 years at The Daily Show, eventually being a co-executive producer there under Jon Stewart, but starting from the very beginning with Craig Kilborn. So we talked a little bit about The Daily Show. If you've listened to the show, you know I'm a fan. You know, I talked to Liz Winstead not too long ago. I've talked to Allison Camillo, who started over there and is now at Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. I've talked to Desi Lydic and Roy Wood Jr. So, you know, it's another Daily Show conversation, which I love. So here it is, my conversation with Kahani Cooperman. I want to start by just asking you about, you know, these last, whatever it's been, nine, 10 months. I, I, I've lost count now, like just since March, I, I guess, like how has, how has life been under, you know, quarantine pandemic mode? You know, it's been really interesting and I hate using the word blessings for some reason, but I, I have much to be fortunate uh, about in, in during these times, you know, I, I didn't suffer a loss of income. I have a house, I have food and I have my health and the health of my family. So I feel like all told, like all those major boxes are checked. And so I have no right to complain. But that being said, I'm watching my teenagers go through, you know, the first year of high school and the second year of college remotely and Mm. from home part of the time. And on one hand, there's a little more family time. But on the other hand, like, it's just not normal. I've done all my work remotely. I've directed remotely. And I do think there is somewhat of a collective trauma for everybody who's going through this together and not knowing, not knowing what it means, not being able to spend time with, you know, certain family members who, you know, you don't live close enough to be in a pod with, and also just the fear of it all. So uh, it's, it's a stressor, man. (laughs) It's a real stressful time. Yeah. It's funny you use blessing though, because like I felt that way, especially I feel like with New Year's happening, you know, just so recently and like, I I don't know how active you are on social media, but I feel like there was just like this, this torrent around New Year's of like, you know, fuck 2020. And like, I'm glad this is gone. Oh yeah. And I was kind of like, there's a lot that I really liked last year that like, I want to figure out like how to integrate into my life going forward. And you know, like it's, it's this weird, like everything is completely mixed up, but at the same time I've learned so much about myself. Like I've grown closer to my family and and seen my kids grow up in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. Like it's, it's a weird mixed bag. And I don't know what our collective trauma is going to look like at the end of it, because we're all dealing with it differently. Yeah, I don't either. And I do agree with you that there's actually 
an upside, which is, you know, my husband and I used to both be commuting five days a week yeah. and it takes it out of you and it takes so much time. And we now have that time for our kids and ourselves and our us, you right. know, and that's made a huge difference. And, you know, I come from a very close knit family. My, my parents are still around and I have, so, you know, I'm one of six siblings and we're all busy and live in different parts of the country. But somehow during the pandemic through Zoom, we're now talking and more consistently than ever. You know, yeah. we have a family Zoom once a week and that kind of thing wasn't always happening. And yeah. so I never if I can afford it, I hope to never commute five days a week again. And <laughs> I and I think it's great. And I, I enjoy being home and, you know, the desk I've set up for myself in, um, I guess, like the playroom, you know, looks out on the backyard. And I literally watch nature happening all day long in my our little backyard. And it's really nice. Yeah. So there's things I appreciate about it. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm from a big family, too. My dad is one of 12 kids, actually. And Ooh. we do uh, family Zooms every Monday. I think last week was number 42, something like that, or yesterday, wow. I guess. And like, I agree with you. And we all sort of express that sentiment that we we uh, we go in with a topic just because between like the 12 siblings and then, you know, all the nieces <laughs> and nephews and stuff like, you know, some of them usually it's like, I don't know, maybe 15 or so of us, but they can be 20, 25 people. So oh like, gosh. there's just always a prompt. It just sort of helps keep it organized. And then everyone gets a turn to, to uh, react to the prompt. But it was about like, what do you want to bring forward for 2021? And right. so many of us were like, we miss this connection. Like when you just see everyone at weddings and funerals and it's this quick, you know, Hey, how are you? Oh, good. Oh, oh, you know, that guy's over there. You don't, yeah. you don't feel the same intimacy. And there is something about, yeah. you know, even though it's digital, like seeing everyone's faces once a week and just hearing their stories in little pieces yeah. that we all really like. I, li I like the idea of a topic. We go totally improv yeah. and all of the childhood dynamics like kick in <laughs> right. and it's not always pretty. <laughs> yeah. Where are you in the line? Are, are you at the but, older well, end, the I'm younger the oldest. end? Oh, oldest. oldest. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm big sis. Yeah. But you know, so there are, there are some definite upsides, but overall, you know, 2020 was a tumultuous year and I ultimately am very glad that it's in the rearview mirror, yeah. but I'll take certain things from it with me yeah. moving forward. Um, let's talk about the antidote for a minute. Um, sure. Where were you guys at just in the production process when everything started shutting down? Towards the end of post-production. Okay. So we were lucky enough to have already filmed everything and we were well into the edit. You know, if you've seen the film, you can imagine this was an incredibly complex edit. Sure. And we were, you know, trying to get... 400 hours of footage and down to, you know, an hour and a half-ish film. So the editing process was really, really challenging and long, but very rewarding ultimately. But we still had to do our final edits remotely. So, you know, you have to just learn how to communicate with all your editors. You're watching cuts online. You're, you know, giving notes that way. I directed with a partner on this one. Yeah. So it was me and another filmmaker, John Hopsman. And so, you know, we would have to communicate our thoughts on cuts so that we weren't giving, giving mixed messages to our editors and, you know, complicating matters more all remotely. And then once we locked picture, it was really interesting to sound mix and color correct remotely 
especially with color correcting, because yeah. I'm looking at my 2013 MacBook Pro <laughs> screen, and I'm sure that the colors I'm seeing are different than what the colorist is seeing and yeah. what you know my co-director is seeing. So you, it's you know you just had to kind of trust, right. trust in people, trust that things would look good, and we we got there though we did it, but it really did change the way we got our film out into the world, our approach. You know the the whole um, Festival life was completely different than like my previous experiences. And we ended up really just being in one festival before getting it out into the world. It was important to us to try and have this out around the election. So we did start our impact screenings prior to the election. And then we put it, you know, it was out on streaming by November 20th. So um, it didn't have the usual path of a lot of documentaries. We just were like, let's, we want this out there. Yeah. We felt like it was some, the, the themes that it's about are important to be thinking about now. And I think even maybe more so now as we're having, you know, what I hope will be a national reset uh, with this new administration. But, you know, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Well, that, you know, that was what was so interesting to me is that it's it's a political film on its face, I guess, like if you were to just sort of enumerate like what's actually happening in it, you know, you, you tell the stories of refugees and people with disabilities and homeless people, LGBT, you know, it's like on its face, those all seem like political issues. And they're things that have become polarized in the national media and, and you know, through politics. But the way that you guys treat them is so anti-political. It's so it's so human. And like, I just love that. I've literally like since finishing the film two days ago, I've probably told at least a dozen people already that I'm just like, oh. you've got to see this film. And like, I, I just wonder, I guess, like dealing with that subject matter and like, I, I guess just the idea that that these topics have become weaponized. And, and I feel yeah. like you've sort of disarmed the uh, the rhetoric around them and just made hmm. us look at, at the human side of, of all of these stories. Right. Thank you for all of that. And I think I think it's not political on the face of it, but probably <laughs> the undersurface of it yep. is. But that being said, you know, I think it's important to look at kind of the origin story of this, which is uh, in, in 2018, John Hoffman had raised a significant amount of money to get this film started based on one word, which was kindness. Mm. And some of that money came from, or a lot of that money came from a healthcare company whose kind of ethos and philosophy, a nonprofit healthcare company, I should add, whose ethos was about kindness and their slogans, hello, human kindness. And he had this incredible opportunity and wanted a partner for it to have complete editorial control to make a film that explored this idea of kindness. And, you know, this was 2018. And so some filmmaker friends uh, suggested that he meet me as a possible partner for this. And uh, we met and, you know, I was at that point, like pretty concerned and upset by this pervasive feeling of crumbling civility sure. all over. Right. And it, it was something so, I was just, I felt like ill at ease with it all. I'm like, what is this? This doesn't feel right. This isn't, I don't recognize it. Um, you know, not that I 
saw this country as being a perfect place by any means, but um, I didn't think of it as a mean-hearted place. And what I was seeing was really, really upsetting. So I thought the opportunity to explore kindness, although it was a blank slate, we had no idea how we were going to go about it, that it was an especially interesting time to explore that aspect of being human and what that means in a civilized democracy. We never talked about the Trump administration. I don't know who people voted for, who we filmed with. I will say that Every story, you know, the, the antidote um, weaves together nine stories kind of into a chorus of everyday people around the country. And each story, while it deals with intentional choices to do things that lift others up, it all, they also address fundamental unkindnesses that, you know, many, many Americans live with. Sure. And when you look at those unkindnesses, I do think you're right. A lot of them are polarizing now, but they all certainly predate 20. 20- 2016, and they've been problems here for years, decades, and in some cases, centuries. Is that political? Is that social? I don't know. You know, maybe it's a combo of the two, but uh, we didn't want to do random acts of kindness. I think that was really, really important with this opportunity. Uh, It was more about intentionality and people who are taking responsibility for issues and problems in their communities that they're seeing on their own and deciding to do something about them. Yeah, I mean, that that grassroots piece definitely shone through. And, you know, what, what's interesting, I guess, is like the whole film, it was it was almost impressionistic to me. Like it, this idea of kindness, it was it was a feeling that you get in watching it. And it's not. It's not a traditional narrative, I guess, in terms of like, you know, here's when this happens and here's when we meet this character and whatever. But it's more just being immersed in this feeling. I I almost I don't know, like I I felt like I was like taking a bath with empathy, if that makes sense. It's a weird (laughs) analogy, but just like I I was just surrounded by empathy the whole time and sort of getting this hug from you guys as filmmakers and as this, this, you know, the storytellers, uh, the people telling their stories, the subjects uh, in the film as well. But yeah, just feeling almost like that scene in the Grinch where like you, you see his heart x-rayed and it just grows and keeps swelling. Like that was the feeling I had the whole time watching it was just like, man, like we've got to, we got to help each other. We're all human. Like what are we doing as a society? Like, just that that it feels like that was an intentional choice though to go more impressionistic and and less specific definitely i mean it's i think it is a little more of an essay of a film yeah. and i i tell people who are going to see it i'm like just let it wash over you you just right. need to kind of let it wash over you like even though you know there's nine separate stories and we all wanted each story to be powerful i think it's our goal was and i hope we succeeded like that it's the film's really about the cumulative effect of all of those stories together and the chorus that they create. And that feeling that you're describing is something that's really important to us. There was someone who watched a really early 16 minute sample reel. Um, He's a journalist and he had a physical reaction to watching. you, You do have a physical reaction to watching people be thoughtfully nice to each other, not even nice. I'm taking nice out of the equation, kind to each other. There's a difference. And um, maybe that's what you were experiencing too. And, you know, the idea really is that uh, with this film, the sum is greater than the parts. We hope the parts are all 
moving and compelling, but it's, which is each story, but it's really how they work together. And it's really how these voices, even though they're from separate stories in different parts of the country, they really do start speaking to elements in, in all the stories. Yeah. Um, so that was really something that we were going for in trying to sort of create this chorus, you know, and I think, you know, we also made a few creative decisions that I think add to the experience of watching the film. And one is there's no, you know, third party uh, big name experts throughout the film, yeah. even though we talked to all of those people in doing our development and preparation for this. But we really realized that there was no better experts than the everyday people in these stories who were actually doing it. They're the ones giving the words of wisdom. They're the ones with the, you know, say, sage advice or and they're showing, not telling. So that's one thing that keeps it that kind of intimate feel that I think you mentioned. Yeah. There's another creative choice I wanted to ask you about, too, and that's sure. the very sparse use of chirons that, you know, you identify mm -hmm. locations, uh, cities, geography, but yeah. you never identify a single person by name. You never identify an organization. Like the only way that I know any of the characters' names is if somebody else refers to that. Like, you know, hey, Bill, yeah. can you uh, can you pass this over? But like that that's such a it's such a strange. It took me a while, I guess, to get used to it. Like I'm so used to like, yeah. wait, who is this guy? What's his name? What's his organization? Yeah. But but I liked it by the end, and I realized even in these nine stories. There's no single subject. You know, they all have 15, 20 main characters, maybe, within these, you know, individual stories. And, like, I wonder why that was a choice, that sort of, that, that push to anonymity. That's a great question. And it was a creative choice that we made. Um, we didn't make it out of the gate, but we started realizing partway through that, like, there was something really powerful in not identifying these people yeah. and then not identifying organizations. And... I mean, there's a few reasons that that we went with that and that I think it, it really helps serve the film. And part of that is that we wanted everyone who watches the film to somewhere along the way see themselves. Mm. And I think when you start putting up titles of people, it, it almost puts like a, a barrier or a boundary. Oh, well, that person's that person's a doctor. Yeah. I'm, I can't do that. Right. I can't ever think about that's for doctors to do, you know, by, by giving people, showing people's titles or by not showing them, suddenly they become in a weird way, like just more of like a human, <laughs> just a person on the planet, a yeah. neighbor, right. you know? And so that was, that was one reason. And the other, it's really just to make the point that like, we're all capable of functioning and navigating in our communities like these people. Mm -hmm. And it really doesn't matter which end of it we are or who we are or what our education is or our titles. It's, it's about something deeper than that. And it's something inside of you. That was one reason why we were like, let's not show who these people are. We also just didn't want to take away. We didn't want to make huge differences between the people who were providing services and the people who were receiving services. We wanted to present a really equal playing field between everyone in the film and the viewers who were watching it so that people could had more of a chance to relate to what they were seeing, to the actions that people were taking. I mean, our, you know, one of our intentions with the film was to move people emotionally enough that they maybe 
ask themselves how they're functioning in the world yeah. and maybe make it a little bit of a, a change. And, you know, we did practical things to make that really easy for people, like through our website and a partnership with volunteermatch.org and those kind of things. But it's also how you interact every day with people. One person who saw this film was moved enough to actually speak to like the homeless person that they pass in the park every day. Right. And then spread that to their kid and they got to know that person's story. It's just like those kinds of things where it made this person think about their own interactions with other humans. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was very meaningful to us, you know. It definitely changes your point of view. I mean, I'm up, I'm up here in Boston, and I know you know there was there was a section that was profiling uh, the homeless yeah. crisis here in Boston, and even you know the uh, the shelter that you guys visited. Like, I went to Emerson College, and that's literally oh, yeah. St. Francis House is like half a block from there, and like it is. We it's walk, right around the corner. Yeah, we walk by there just all the time as kids, and like it never occurred to, you know, it was, it was almost this scary experience that like, you know, CVS was on the other side and like, you'd have to walk past these people smoking out front and like to yeah. see what's happening in that building and just be like, wow. Like, and I mean, this was 20 years ago now, but like I completely misjudged what was happening there. And like, boy, I wish I could go back and, you know, help them and, you know, just volunteer somehow, or, you know, like I was right there for, a key yeah. part of my life. And just this was this was under my nose and I wasn't even paying attention to it. Uh, but I think that's, you know, it's good that you are now. But also, I think like that's a great little reminder to us all is to like pay attention. And I think the idea of listening is also something that really comes out strongly in the film and how powerful it is to really listen to people yeah. and be open to hearing their stories. And that St. Francis House and also the street team, Dr. Jim O'Connell in Boston there, who knows everyone in the homeless population and goes to meets them where they are and goes yeah. out on the street and gives them health care that they need. It's kind of an incredible, incredible thing. There's a quote in the film that really stood out to me that, you know, in the United States, our differences are not a weakness, they're a strength. And I feel yeah. like that is that's a core principle that I was taught in school. But I feel like it's a thing that and, and you hit on this before, but like, I don't know that everybody believes that anymore. I don't know that that is a that's a common value anymore in the U.S. Like, I wonder just like how what went wrong there? How did we how did we lose sight of that? And, you know, how did we get to this place? That that was sort of the question I kept asking as I was watching the film. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a good question. And that statement is from a high school teacher who's yeah. in our in our film. In that story, they're teaching ninth graders a world religions class that's required for high school graduation in that public school, which is an incredible thing, really. And the reason they're teaching that class ultimately isn't about religion. It is about taking a moment to understand other people who are different from you right. in order to hopefully create more respectful adults, which is what you're talking about, like where did that go? You know, I am not an expert on that, but if I had to guess, I think it's fear. Um, and I think it's economic inequality and, you know, just all of these things that speak to huge structural and societal issues in this country. But I think it's fear-based, fear that someone's going to have something that you don't, something that you need. <laughs> It's how easy it is to other people who aren't like you. It's definitely not how I grew up either. 
but it certainly seems like, like you said, there, there's a considerable amount of people who don't see diversity as being a plus. Yeah. And I absolutely don't understand that. I'm a first generation American on my dad's side. He yeah. was not born here. So I grew up with like a, a very strong sense of gratitude for everything this country provided to him and his family when he came here through him, but also this sense always that like there's scenarios where that can go away. I just think it's all so fragile. That's something that the last four years has really, really shown me. Yeah. And in a strange, as strange as it is to say, I felt more patriotic in the last four years than I felt prior Mm. because I think I realized how I think because I was taking so much for granted and when it felt what to me was so threatened I suddenly realized what I cherished more about this country at least in theory so it was it's been a really interesting I don't know bunch of years yeah uh to just really think contemplate and think about also you know, tough, yeah. <laughs> really tough. Well, that's yeah. kind of like, I'm like, where are we headed? I mean, that like you talk about the incoming administration and like, yeah, I, I feel reassured about that a little bit. You know, we still, as we're recording now, don't know what's going to happen in Georgia and like, you know, what the Senate's going to look like. Yeah, right. <laughs> but like, yeah. it, like, you know, they're already talking about like the 2022 primary season, you know, for the for the uh, Senate and, and Congress uh, seats that are up then. And, you know, then we have the presidential in 2024 and realizing that like Trumpism, if it's even fair to, to just put it all on him, like that notion is not going away. And I feel like the the Republican party at least is leaning into the extremism of that. And, you know, like they see that as a path to victory and it's only going to continue to get crazier, whether or not Donald Trump is involved in any way, or, you know, if he becomes, if he stays as, you know, the head of the party for, for a while, I don't know, but like, I I just think it's going to get ugly again. You know, we're going to have a nice inauguration and maybe a nice month or two. And then, all the same demons that have haunted us for the last four years are just going to come right back. Yeah. I, all I can say is I have all the same fears and concerns and like nagging worries yeah. <laughs> um, about how it's all going to happen and go down. Right. But I, you know, I, I still have this belief. I just think like, like you can't take your foot off the pedal for a second. You know, it was a great afternoon. <laughs> For me, when the networks announced, you know, that Biden had won, I'll, you know, put it all out there. No surprise. And that was like this joyous afternoon and the town I live in just erupted, you know, with like an incredible atmosphere. And then like that was like for a few hours. And then it kind of like went back to worrying. (laughs) And I kind of feel like I'm expecting the exact same thing. I expect to be inspired by the inauguration. I'm excited about the possibilities of of what's coming, but I also am trepidatious about all of it. And I don't think we can for a second become complacent at all. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you to just, you know, your history and, you know, you spent almost two decades at The Daily Show, right? Going back to like the Craig Kilborn era and then, you know, through almost all of Jon Stewart's run. Like you guys there really looked at this 
on a daily level, I guess, you know, this sort of all the things that led us to Trumpism, I guess. And, you know, the media's role in it and, you know, Fox News and going back to Bill O'Reilly and guys like that. And, you know, like I like you've had this very interesting perspective, I guess, on on where we're headed for a long time and, you know, have been paid to look at it for a long time. Like, what? I guess just how did we get here? (laughs) Like, what (laughs) what got us to this place where we don't see each other as humans anymore? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. I don't have the answer. I ask myself that same question every day. And I ask myself, how do I find myself in a bubble where I really am surrounded by people who only who think the same way I do. Yeah. I don't that's not good. That's not healthy. And how did we get to that point where that's possible? And you can look at social media and you can look at polarizing media of which by the way a lot of people point to the daily show as not having helped yeah. in that realm. Maybe that's true, but I know that you know, when I was working there, it was for 18 years and I was hired because of my documentary filmmaking background. And I ultimately left to pursue that again, because I, I never really lost my passion for it at all. But man, what a great detour. You know, it was 12 weeks, a 12 week gig that turned into like 18 years of an incredible ride that was part of this incredible institution, really. And it was just interesting to be part of something like that from the very beginning. And I was the day oneer there. Um, And I know you've talked with uh, Liz Winstead as well. So I, I worked with her there Awesome. and um, yeah, it was awesome. And um, it was really interesting to be part of this show that, you know, was really relatively off the radar, especially at first in those first couple of years, it was much more about kind of news of the weird. It looked like a new show, you know, but it didn't sound like a new show. You really listened to what people were saying. But then a couple of years into it, we know when Jon Stewart came, you know, he kind of looked at what we had been doing and he just said, your targets are all wrong. That your targets shouldn't be the people with no voice, which was sort of these fringy, quirky stories that we were doing. It's like the targets need to be the people who have a voice, you know, which were the politicians, which was the media. And it was this like fairly quick sort of pivoting, a pivot moment. And it was really interesting to be part of that. He really did lead the charge on that pivot. And that's because that's where his passions lie. And that's we cared about. And I think that's when we started, like the gears really, really started moving in a major way. And people started looking at us differently. And we went from just in the course of maybe a year or two, nobody knowing who we were, and no one really wanted to be on our show that much to, you know, especially when we hit like, by the time we hit like the 2000 presidential conventions um the national conventions suddenly it was like people really did want to talk to us and it was a really interesting time because it changed the dynamic um there was something advantageous to showing a playful part of yourself or to showing that you were in on a joke or to assuming that like we would never get a joke over a you but we you know often did and so it was really really amazing to be a part of that and to see how John Stewart's influence grew and the the show's influence grew along the way and my husband has the best line he worked for Dateline for many many years including when I first started out at the Daily Show uh-huh. and um he said people used to watch 
Dateline for news and the Daily Show for laughs, and now they're just laughing at Dateline and watching the Daily Show for news. Um, and he went on to work for Colbert for that whole run, actually. But oh, cool. um, but I thought that was such a good observation because I do think like it spoke to the sort of shift in the paradigm of how people were getting their news. Yeah. Uh, none of that speaks to how we got here. Right. But I think if you were going to study it, you know, people are always thinking like, oh, when Jon Stewart went on Crossfire and, you know, told Tucker Carlson, you know, you're hurting America by not having debate, right. you know, instead, it just that's when he sort of was calling out the partisanization or something of discussion yeah. that was starting to happen. And I think it just evolved from there. And then with the rise of say Fox News or, you know, versus CNN versus MSNBC, you all these networks started preaching to the converted as opposed to, I think, people watching to get any kind of objective point of view. And that's, you know, that leads to divisions in all kinds of ways. And then you add in social media and the bubbles that social media creates, you know, I don't know if I would call myself a victim or a player in that as well. Even I'm not super active on social media, but I'm on it and I'm influenced by it for sure. Was the country ready for Obama? I don't know. Yeah, right. You know, is Trump, the election of Trump, a pendulum going all the way to the other end reaction to having had Obama? I don't know. I'm not a political expert in any way, shape or form. But I think that the divisiveness has, it's not something that happened suddenly. I think it's been brewing for a long, long time. Yeah. And that recent circumstances, you know, brought it out from whatever, whatever veneer, it sort yeah. of eroded the veneer that was there. And here we are, like facing it head on. Yeah. Well, the the whole point about just, you know, choosing your targets is interesting to me. And I remember certainly the, the Tucker Carlson uh, confrontation on, on Crossfire. And also it reminds me of the Jim Cramer one around the financial crisis, which happened on oh, your yeah. stage. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, John sure went did. to John went to there. Crossfire for that. But but Jim was was in your studio. Um, but in yeah. both cases, I feel like it was uh, the the sentiment behind it was uh, John was almost calling out like the the theatrics that had gone into news at that point, you know, starting, it feels like in the late nineties, early two thousands. And, you know, this idea that it was, it was almost like wrestling or something that, you know, like I always kind of wondered that a lot of the Fox commentator, O'Reilly, especially when he first started, I'm like, this guy, you know, he lives in New York, like his, his studios in Midtown, like, does he really believe this or has he figured out that this (laughs) messaging worked? That was always like for, five years I could never figure it out and you know like Hannity I feel like at least is a lot more transparent that you're just like oh no he really believes that like he goes home and he's the same guy off camera that he is on camera but like I I always kind of wondered when the early days of Fox like is this a gimmick (laughs) or you know and and I feel like that's kind of what was being called out was like you have a responsibility I feel the same in politics right now of like yeah you know, all these senators that are like, well, we don't know if the vote was legal or not. Let's just wait and see. I'm like, why are you you doing that? Like, you have a real (laughs) responsibility here. I don't know. Just that that piece in media and in politics is is kind of missing that feeling like I have a responsibility to be honest with people and and people care what I have to say. It's kind of it's it's theater now. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So that's part of the reasons 
why, you know, my last couple of projects have sort of, <laughs> I think, instinctively focused on the better part of ourselves. Because yeah. I actually sort of am a, despite it all, believer in essential goodness. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that shows through in the antidote. I mean, that's, you know, I feel like we, we took a pessimistic turn and maybe I took us there, but, um, the, the, you know, we opened with just the optimism of the film and like, I yeah. wonder, you know, as, as we look ahead to, you know, a new administration's coming in, it's the start of a new year. Like how optimistic do you feel? Do you feel like we, there, there's something good on the other side here? Can we get there? I have to say, yes, I have to, yeah. <laughs> to function. <laughs> I have to say yes. Yeah, but I but that's I I can't deny that I feel that that hope is being threatened, <laughs> is threatened and yeah I don't want to be a downer or anything because I I am concerned but I also like feel like that that more people in this country are aware of the problems the systemic problems in this country they're you know because of everything that happened this summer and the murder of George Floyd I feel like more people are aware of the systemic problems. Yeah. And I think the more people that know about it, hopefully the more people are going to do something about it and, and look at their own roles and everything and make sure that they're doing what they can to acknowledge and also, and not, you know, just acknowledge, but do something about it. Yeah. You know, out of these horrible things also comes some hope for me. And I, I look at it, I look at all of it like that. And I just think we can't we can't get complacent and we can't for a second stop working towards the betterment of everything. We don't need any more reminders about how fragile it all is. Yeah. We know it's fragile. So we have to do everything we can to bolster it at all times. Yeah. So my hope comes in is that there's enough people who feel that same way and that, you know, together we all do that. But it's like I feel like everyone's got to be on the lookout right now yeah. <laughs> not to be like paranoid, but, but that is kind of how I'm feeling. Yeah. It, it's that you can't just not be not racist. You have to be anti-racist like that thing, but like apply that across every, you know, homophobia and uh, gender issues, <laughs> age discrimination, disability, you know, exactly. just across the whole spectrum. Like you, you really need to stand up for all of it. Yeah. And you have to, I think, you know, make some sacrifices and make room for people and make sure that everything's fair and check your own privilege every step of the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I, the antidote, you said you were moved by it, which I'm, I'm really glad about, but I'm also thinking a lot of people have a very emotional response to the film. And it's not just because they're seeing, you know, people be kind and nice in their communities. It's because I think it's their being intentionally kind within their communities in the face of these unkindnesses. And I think it's, it's that relationship and that acknowledgement and that absorption that there are so many problems and what do we do about it and whose responsibilities are they? And we're not just presenting the problem. Um, we're focusing on the solution, but we are doing so while acknowledging the problems. And I think it helps it helps keep it uh, a little more complex. It's not just about people doing good. It's yeah. about acknowledging why they are choosing to do that, the reasons that got them there. Yeah. So I think that adds to the emotional response that we're getting. 
from a lot of people who some people it's interesting. Some people say like, I started crying the moment the movie started (laughs) and I didn't stop, you know, but really we went about finding our stories in a simple way. We asked ourselves, we came up with quest, these essential questions. We're like, if this movie can help answer or look at these kind of questions about, it'll help us answer about who we are as a country. And they were simple. You know, how do we raise our children? How do we teach our children? How do we live and work together? How do we take care of the sick and the dying? How do we welcome the stranger? And how do we lead? Mm. Those were our North Star questions. And we combine them with what we identified as the fundamental unkindnesses, frankly, after Charlottesville happened. And we realized we had to acknowledge what so many Americans live with every day in our film in all different ways. So we came up with a list of what are what are these fundamental unkindnesses it's fundamentally unkind to not have a safe place to sleep it's fundamentally unkind to not have access to health care you know it's fundamentally unkind to not earn a living wage and you know the injustices of like racism is fundamentally unkind homophobia fundamentally unkind sexism fundamentally unkind and so we took those and we combined them sort of with our questions and together that became the lens through which we we found our stories um, for the film well and i feel like those north star questions like this film couldn't have come at a more perfect time. And I, I know you didn't plan for a global pandemic during pre-production, but like we really didn't <laughs> like as, as we're living through this. I feel like those are questions we're all asking ourselves every day. And just, yeah. you know, as we talked about at the beginning, kind of resetting our own lives and it just feels like this perfect little gift for the moment that we're in that like, uh, Oh, you know, this is, here's some of the answers or at least, you know, here's the right mindset to be in. Here's the framework to start thinking about how we get to the better yeah. place. So thank Aww. you for that. Yeah. You're, you're welcome. Thank, thank <laughs> you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad the film affected you. That, yeah. that means a lot. All right. Kahani Cooperman there. Yeah. The film affected me. I hope it'll affect you too. It's a really good watch and feels really necessary in these times that we're in right now. The Antidote is streaming now on Amazon Prime and also available on on-demand services. So go check it out. All right, I have new shows every Monday and Thursday. Make sure you hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you'll be among the first to get new episodes. I'm at Heath Rosella on social media. Check me out. My Twitter is still active for now at least. (laughs) I will talk to you guys on Thursday. Stay safe.